one. So I was singing, and I found myself um, having to stop singing because I'm recovering a little bit from a cold, and I was getting a little lightheaded. So um, if I pull through, it's you're going to have the Word of God preach for you today. And if I don't pull through and pass out up here, either way, it's going to be eventful, right? So um, thanks for being here with us this morning. <clears throat> so the United States has surpassed, this is in 2022, has surpassed 22, or $33 trillion in debt. So as of last year, that's, that's 12 zeros, 33 trillion. And so added up, our debt in the U.S. is greater than the entire economies of China, Japan, Germany, India, and the U.K., and that's all combined. If you were to combine all those world economies, our debt is greater than those. And so on a personal level, as we bring it down to household, our debt uh, is, is per household is about 252K, and that would equal to about 99K per person in the U.S. So lots of debt there. And we think about debt, God's Word talks to us about debt. It even compares our sins to debt. In the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer that we're to pray, Matthew 6, 12 says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Debt being subbed in there for the word sins. And so we prone, we're prone to think of our sin as paying off our personal debt, right? When, when more accurately, as we think about our sin, the way God depicts our sin, it would be like paying off the national debt. Can you imagine if tomorrow you woke up to find out that you owed the entire debt of the United States government? At times we can be prone to think that sin is harmless or it's not all that bad. But the Bible paints a different picture. Our relationship with God is bankrupt in our natural state. Sin is a debt that we can never repay. But Jesus came and willingly took on that debt on the cross for our sins. He offers forgiveness. And those that have found redemption in Him, they have been forgiven so much. So let's pray this morning that we would know the great debt that sin causes and that we would know the great forgiveness that Jesus promises. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we need Your help. We are weak and feeble, but You are mighty and strong. Help us to honor you in all that we do. Help us to know the realities, eternal, heavenly realities, and the great forgiveness you offer. In your name we pray. Amen. If you remember back, we've been going through the book of Luke. In the last message in Luke, we saw Jesus. He was performing miracles. He was healing people. He was driving out demons. People that were blind could see. The lame could walk. And he left the crowds, after doing all these miracles, he left them with a word of judgment. If you look back to verse 31 in chapter 7, he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? And he said they were like children, playing games. And no matter what game they played, the, the sad game or the happy game, 
the message of the kingdom of God was coming to them, whether it's through John the Baptist who came mourning and in the wilderness, or Jesus who came rejoicing and feasting, they rejected it no matter the way in which it came to them. But Jesus ends this word of rebuke, this word of judgment. In verse 35, he says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Meaning that the fruit of those, the, the, the outcome of those that accept Jesus, they'll be vindicated by their actions. And the, and the ones that reject Jesus, it will prove, they will, their fruit will prove their, uh, their actions false and what they were doing. And it's with this understanding that we have this social scene unfolding in Luke chapter 7, verse, starting in verse 36, if you want to turn there. Jesus has been talking about this upside-down kingdom that he's bringing. This, he's, he's defying expectations everywhere he goes. He is not the Messiah that many expected. And we see in this scene a man on top of the social ladder a religious a Pharisee, a, a leader, a religious leader of the day. This is someone that would, would be in high society, good standing. And we're going to see that contrasted with a woman who would be at the bottom of society, a known sinner. And we're going to see how Jesus responds. So a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to his house for a meal. This meal is not casual. This is not just like, hey, you want to catch dinner tonight? We'll, we'll order something in. No, this is a formal dinner banquet in which only privileged guests would be invited. We've seen in past weeks the Pharisees, they're this group of religious leaders. They, they were against Jesus. They thought he was a heretic. He was, he was claiming things that only God can claim. And so a question we might be wondering, if the religious leaders and the Pharisees were against Jesus, why would they have him over for a meal? Why would they break bread with him? Most likely, it's to, to test his claims. And even if you're against Jesus, he would probably be a very compelling dinner guest, right? Hearing all the great things he had done, his fame and notoriety for, for healing and saving people. And so it's at this fancy dinner scene of proper etiquette that something drastically changes. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. This woman finds out that Jesus is having dinner at this house. And she has every intention of meeting Jesus. She brings with her a gift, this alabaster flask. So this would be very costly. A large container of precious perfume. And all we know about this woman is that she's a woman of the city. She's a known sinner. We're not told specifically what her sin is, but the way she is treated, it was probably sexual in nature. Whatever her sin was, it was well known. And there is no way that she would be on the Pharisees' invite list to come to this banquet. We don't know how she gets in the house. Houses in Israel were a little more open. They might be in courtyards. Maybe you could see them from the street. Could it be more accessible to others. But how, regardless, she makes it into the banquet. 
And when we think about Jesus reclining at the table, if you look at verse 36, it took me a little while to understand this dinner setting. What you, what's meant by reclining? So back in the day, they didn't have chairs around the table. They had couches, elevated couches that went all around the table. And people would lean on their left elbow. Kind of, I kind of imagined it. Uh, the only kind of comparison in my head was kind of the picture of like girls at a slumber party. But they would, they would recline and lean on their left elbow and then eat with their right hand. And so their feet would be behind them. People would be all around the table in that position. And this woman standing behind Jesus begins weeping on his feet. And then she wipes her feet with her, with her hair. She begins kissing his feet and pours out this perfume that she has brought with her. I don't want to downplay. If this scene sounds odd, it would have been. It would have been odd to everyone there. They're trying to be polite and carry on with civil conversation, but, but they couldn't help but stare. They couldn't help but be concerned. What is happening over there? If this was a time that people would clutch their pearls and be like, what is happening? If you've ever been in a group of people and all of a sudden you encounter a person that doesn't fit in, maybe a, maybe a person yelling or you encounter a homeless man on the street or, or something of that nature and it just there's kind of this highly, um, you, don't, you don't know how to respond. It's, it's unusual to them. She doesn't belong. This woman, she, she heard about Jesus. This one who offers repentance, not just to the elite of society, not just to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, but Jesus who offers forgiveness to tax collectors, who offers forgiveness to sinners. And in this time, walking all day on dusty roads, feet were very dirty. And feet were so nasty, even slaves did not untie the sandal straps of their masters. Yet this woman, counterculturally, does not care about polite society. She doesn't care that she's breaking social norms. She humbles herself at Jesus' feet. She weeps openly in this room, surrounded by all these people that probably despised her. She tenderly dries his feet with her hair, and she pours out her perfume and lavishes them with kisses. Her intent is to honor him, to praise him, to, to love him, to worship him with all that she had. And just can you imagine the shock that was going through people's minds? This woman, an infamous center, sinner, has interrupted their banquet and is crying is kissing Jesus' feet. Judgment and disdain would have been in so many people's minds. We read in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. <clears throat> the Pharisees, they already saw Jesus with suspicion. His actions at the party only give them reason to be more skeptical. In Jewish culture, one would shun the touch of a sinful person because this would defile you. It would make you unclean. And so they believed in, in, um, in uh, holiness by segregation. 
I'm going to keep myself away from the impure, the undesirable people of society. I don't want to defile myself. And so Simon the Pharisee, he's thinking there's no way Jesus is a prophet. There's no way Jesus is sent of God. Because if he was sent of God, he would know this woman's sin. He would know what a bad lady she is. And there's no way he would touch her and allow this to happen. He would rebuke her and send her away. And he's, what's cool is he's thinking these thoughts in his head. We see in verse 39, he said these things to himself. But Jesus hears these thoughts. In his divine sovereignty, in his power, he hears the internal thoughts of the Pharisees and he answers him with a parable. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Both the debtors in this story are in debt over their heads. Debt they cannot afford to pay, even if they worked double shift or overtime. This is in a time of day laborers. 50 denarii was two months wages. Imagine if you owe two months wages of living expenses. 500 denarii was almost two years wages. Both of them, by the grace of the one who lent them this money, are forgiven the entirety of what they owed in this story, in this parable that Jesus is telling. Their debts are both canceled, not because of anything they did, but by the grace of the one who lent them this money. And Simon thinks Jesus is a false prophet, that he's speaking blasphemy, that he's befriending sinners. And Jesus in this parable, he shows, he knows exactly what kind of woman this is. He knows exactly that she's a sinner in need of grace. And he knows exactly what Simon is thinking. Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt, he said. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So there is hope for Simon yet. He got Jesus' parable right. Of course, they would both be grateful to have their debts canceled. But the one who has forgiven the larger debt, almost ten times greater, has even more reason to love the one who forgave him. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, all of humanity has been plagued by the curse of sin. They chose themselves over God, and as a result, every subsequent generation is born indebted to their sin. And sadly, just as Adam and Eve did, we do the same. We think we know better. We don't trust the one who made us. We lean on our own understanding. We are born into this debt of sin. And this debt only further compounds itself. This debt is crushing, and no matter how we might try, we can never pay it off. And our, as we saw earlier, our response is to minimize. Our inner lawyer comes out to defend ourselves and says that our sin is not all that bad. We may be like the Pharisee who believes he is the upright one, who believes he is in good standing before God. But we need a reality check 
if we believe that we are good in and of ourselves because we fall short in almost every way. You may think, I, you know, I don't have any big sins. I haven't done anything really wrong. I do these religious observances. You know, I go to church. But just listen to some of these commands from God's Word. Just listen to them. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Do you love Him with all your strength, with all your heart? There's no way. We love ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do we do everything to the glory of God? Of course not. We do so much to the glory of ourselves. Our natural state before God, we are sinners in a moral debt that we cannot pay off. We fail, we, we sin like a fish is in water. We're surrounded by it. We could do, serve others. We could do every religious ritual. We could look good before men, all polished up on the outside like the Pharisees, and not even the principle of our debt, of our sin, would ever be touched. Our sin is ultimately against God, who is infinite and eternal. And I, my heart grieves. As, as much as it may be hard for us to understand and hear at times, our sin against the eternal holy God requires an eternal punishment. To satisfy His holy justice, every sinner who chooses their own way, who dies indebted to their sin, will suffer eternally in hell. This is heartbreaking. This is a, a weighty thing. This debt that we can never pay. But thankfully, God does not leave us to our own devices. This one who the Pharisees judged, <laughs> this one that they stood in judgment over, that they denied, that they rejected, that they invited to their dinner party as a kind of uh, spectacle to, to see if he was, uh, to maybe expose him. This was the very purpose that he came for. To save his people from their sin. Jesus then turns to the woman. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course he sees her. All they can do, everyone sees her. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon failed to do what was expected of him as a host. Customarily, in, in Jewish hospitality, there'd be a basin of water next to the door and a towel for you to wipe your feet, clean off, because everyone was dirty. It was a custom to kiss friends and guests as they come over to your house on the cheek as they entered. 
Simon was skeptical and cautious. He didn't want to be known as a friend of Jesus. He didn't provide water for his feet. These dirty feet. Walking the roads of Palestine. Simon did not give him a greeting of a kiss when he entered his house. He probably didn't want to signal to his friends that he was tight with Jesus. This woman, by contrast, repeatedly kissed his feet. She expressed extravagant love and devotion. She disregarded what others thought of her just to be at his feet, just to show him the devotion that he deserves. Others came to this dinner for a party. This woman came to go to church. She knew that Jesus was there. All she could do was worship Him. All she could do was praise Him, adore Him, thank Him for who He is and what He would do. Broken over her sin. I just ask you, when we gather for worship, are our hearts filled with gratitude? Are our hearts filled with praise and adoration and thanksgiving to Jesus? Even if we're a small service, even if Matt Kendall has to sit out for a week or I'm not the best preacher, whatever it may be, he is worthy of our praise. Jesus, after laying out this parable, answers Simon. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she was loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little man if there's one verse that you rest on this week let it be this one verse 47 her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little earlier i spoke of that great debt we are in to sin and I bring this up because I don't want anyone to die in their sins thinking they are sufficient to save themselves. And for my Christian brothers and sisters in the room, I don't want us to forget the enormity of what we have been saved from. Do you ever dwell on that? Apart from Christ's intervention, we would all stand before God, trusting in our own righteousness and coming up utterly and completely lacking. We would live as slaves to our sin in this life and suffer for eternity here. But Jesus, Jesus, He lived the perfect life. He never once sinned. He never once went into moral debt. In fact, wherever He went, He liberated people. He broke the chains of enslavement, of sin, and he was willingly murdered on a cross, taking on the debt of all our sins so that we would be right with God. And he offers forgiveness and mercy for all who are not perfect people, who are not good in and of themselves, but for all who would trust in him, for all who would humble themselves just as this precious woman did. He came for those who knew they were sinners, not those who are already good in their own eyes. And the point of the story is that Simon is not forgiven at all. He has little love for Jesus. 
Because he has no sense of needing forgiveness. He's a critic of Jesus, not a recipient of his grace. This woman is the exact opposite. There are two types of people in all of humanity. Those who have been forgiven and those who haven't. Those that repent of their sin and bow down before Jesus in praise. And those that refuse to submit to him. It's that simple. What category do you fall into? Have you been forgiven? Do you need to be forgiven? And if you're wondering, how can we tell we are repentant? How can we tell? It's repentant people mourn over their sin and they, they turn from them. They're not content to be in their sin. And they're adoring Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have been forgiven so much. Our sins were many, but we are greatly forgiven. We were doomed to hell, doomed to die in our sin, but He has pursued us in great love and He's given us this gift of salvation out and out of this forgiveness, taking hold of the truth of the love that we possess and the forgiveness that we have been given, we can love greatly. We can love like no other. We can have a love and an adoration for God. Have a love for our neighbors like never before. It's an amazing to think that everyone who is in Christ, that our greatest need in this life has been met. And that we will praise Him eternally in this redemption that we have in Him. There is no greater gift that God can give to any of us than to cancel our debt. And in His grace, He forgives us of every sin we've committed. Every one of them. Just listen to this truth in Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There are no strings attached to his mercy. The debt of our sin was nailed to the cross and in the beauty of the great exchange, Jesus takes on our sin and His people, those who have repented and trust in Him, they are given His righteousness. The blackboard of all our iniquities is erased and in its place is written the perfect righteousness of Christ. And we are now in Christ, walking as new creations in forgiveness and redemption. And because we've been forgiven, we are freed to love. And you're forgiven so much, we're freed to love much. Just think about when you love someone, you're preoccupied with them. You delight in them. You desire them. We do. This is... This is how we love Christ. That love means we delight in His person. We delight in His accomplishments. Is this our heart towards Christ? What lavish acts of love out of gratitude to Him has He called us to? 
as his people, we will love what he loves, his righteousness. We will love justice. We'll love mercy. We'll love obedience. We'll love his people, our, our fellow brothers and sisters. We'll love those we've been called to reach here in this city that don't know him, that are indebted to their sins. I want to share this message of life with them out of love, compelled by love. Ways in which we can serve <laughs> driven by love without expecting anything in return. This love draws us to, to cry with the broken, to rejoice with the happy, to disciple others. Love continually gives. <laughs> he has given us so much. Jesus goes on and he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'm telling you, she was crying at his feet in adoration. I can almost guarantee you she was crying in rejoicing, leaving. This wonderful Savior who tells her to go in peace. Who tells her the sins, the dirtiest sins. Publicly shamed, publicly acknowledged, known to be a sinner. That Jesus forgave her. And all is forgiven. All is wiped clean. Some may see this and think it's because of her great love that her sins are forgiven. But this is not the case. It's not something we earn, right? If I love Jesus enough, or if I love this enough, my sins will be forgiven. The truth is, is that the one who is forgiven a massive debt, they will respond in love. As Jesus said it, it is her faith that saved her. She was a broken sinner, but she was trusting in Jesus fully for her salvation. And Jesus graciously forgives her. I ask you this morning, how often do you consider right now, if you are in Christ, your debt is fully wiped clean? There's no condemnation for you. If you're here this morning, you struggle with sin. If you struggle with guilt, you struggle with the past, you struggle with shame. Maybe you struggle with sin that you've committed or sin that's happened to you. Just know our debt is wiped clean. And the Lord has open arms for those that confess their sins. Just listen to the Word of God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. We read in Micah, He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Our sins have no power over us anymore. Our sin, guilt, and shame, if we're trusting Christ, it is it's covered by the blood of Jesus. Corey Ten Boom says that when God throws our sin into the deepest sea, he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. 
You can't go get it back out. It's covered. It's gone. Beloved, never let your past or present sins define who you are in Christ. You have been set free. Go to Him. Pour out your heart in adoration. Weep at His feet. Love Him lavishly with your attention, your time, your energy, your money. Looking to only Him as our reward. Your debts have been wiped clean and now in place stands the perfect righteousness of Christ accredited to your account. And those forgiven much will love much. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we adore you. <laughs> Thank you for your great forgiveness. God, may we know the realities of what we have in you. God, and may we be driven not by to be made right in your eyes. May we be driven not to, to do a Christian checklist of things I got to get done to be right with God, Lord, but may we be driven by your great love. We are forgiven people. We stand freed. Man. Lord, may we live in your abundant love. The overflow of the forgiveness we've received, may we forgive others in the same way and love others in the same way. Thank you for the gift that we have in you. In your name we pray, amen.